Scott, my most favorite, absolute best ever shoe is the Ultra Superior 2.0. They're made for the trail. Unless I'm on the road, then I'm wearing my... What are these? These are the ones. And I just love the Ultra Shoe. You know, Don, I'm on my third pair of Ultra Shoes and looking forward to receiving my fourth pair here in the mail soon. I love these Ultra Shoes. I keep my shoes around, and who knows why. And I've got a pair of old Vasque that I wore that I wore on Western States in my first one. And so they're sentimental. And I put them on the other day. And I think I'm really accustomed to this zero drop because I, I felt like I was walking on, <laughs> on in high heels. I mean, it, I could feel the difference. I can't believe I ran that whole race. You know, speaking of that, I actually can feel the difference in the toe box where my toes don't feel scrunched. They just feel like when I'm running, they can spread out and be like webbed feet almost. <laughs> well, you know, like Dr. Kukazella says, you know, the, the feet have to work and they need to splay and they need to be able to push and they need to be able to move just like they do if the shoes aren't on. And, and the ultra toe box and the zero drop, it really lets you do it. And so we encourage other people to, to do what we've done and, and discover the difference with the ultra. See if you love them as much as we do. So simply go over to ultrarunning.com, A-L-T-R-A, running.com. Jimmy Dean Freeman is running 135 miles in the most extreme conditions you could even dream of. You need hydration. You need electrolytes. You need all of that. And uh, the only thing that I would be making sure I had in my crew van was gallons of tailwind. <laughs> I would have gallons. I'd have gallons of tailwind. And I would have pounds and pounds of ice. <laughs> yeah. You know, Tailwind gives you the electrolytes you need. It gives you the, the, uh, the calories that you need in the right formula. And more important than anything, it has that savory taste. It's not too, uh, too sweet. You don't get that palate discomfort after drinking it for hours and hours. You know, Scott, those are a bunch of words that are kind of gobbledygook to me. You know, this palate stuff. Here's what I have to say. Tastes good. <laughs> and the green's my favorite. And I, and I love all of those, uh, the lemon stuff and, and the buzz. The buzz has the caffeine. So you can get the right electrolytes and a little bit of extra if you want it. Just go to uh, tailwindnutrition.com or to our page. Click on Partners and click on the link and boom, it'll put you right there. Your own personal aid station. Ladies and gentlemen of the wide, worldwide ultra-running community, you are listening to nothing less than the greatest Trail Running Nation podcast on Earth. It is the Trail Runner Nation podcast. This might be one of the most interesting podcasts ever. Oh, that's what you're doing. There's a bunch of, like, old brothel hookers, like, buried out here. Oh, I've, uh, I've listened to your podcast for many years, and uh, it's, um, yeah... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do. I do own my own bar. Uh, <laughs> every Friday morning on uh, I Run Far, we open up and uh, open up the taps. You get you record this, aren't you, Freeman? I get everything. And recording. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you want to just start it? No. You know, Jimmy doesn't like preparation. I remember one time I, I showed him my four bullet points for the podcast, and he says, that's way, way, you're way overthinking it. Don't do that. Yeah, I said that until I started doing a podcast myself and realized. <laughs> like, 
how important it was to to have some show notes before. Okay, so time out. It's different different for the host, isn't there, Jim? It's way different. Okay, we're going to dig deep into that. But first, we're here to talk about Jimmy going to Badwater for the second time. And he's been crew. He's done a lot of things. And he's going to share his amazing adventure that's right in front of him. But wait a second, Jimmy. We've got a lot to do here before we get to that race, don't we? We have a lot to talk about. <laughs> now, now uh, Scott, you are in uh, somewhere down south, Carlsbad. In fact, you're, you are closer to Jimmy than I am right now, and I'm up, up here in our Sacramento region. And Jimmy, you are positioned in Southern California as well, and so we're all on Skype tonight. Yeah, it's really a shame that me and Scott aren't hanging out. He's so close. Uh, yeah. You come, come, come out to the beach uh, tomorrow morning, and let's go for a run. Yeah. He's, tap- he's tapering. So, <laughs> so, so this thing kind of started off with uh, um, a hello, and then Scott makes a comment that it's a lot different being a host, which makes me say, a host of what, Jimmy Dean Freeman, this, this uh, hosting that you're doing? Uh, I've started a new podcast. It's called Do Inspiring Shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, co-host is Whitney Powell, who has been a guest of TRN a couple of times. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And it's been, you know, we're interviewing people about the cycle of failure and success in every area of life. So, you know, our first episode, we had a Super Bowl champion uh, football player. Um, we've had an Olympic gold medalist swimmer. We've had uh, Topher Gaylord, who's another uh, ultra runner friend. Uh, he he went from the stock room to president of an outdoor retailer. So we talked about that. Um, in in a lot of the conversations, family, um, life partnerships, relationships, um, you know, financial success. We talk we talk about success through the um, idea of you know how to fail successfully, I guess. How do you overcome the cycle of challenge and failure to get to whatever your goal and dream is? So do you think failure is uh, critical or essential to uh, a success, successful model or su- success plan, if you will? If you haven't failed at something, you haven't achieved the highest level of success you can achieve. So, so you're you're to the point. If you you haven't uh, suffered a little bit, it, it's hard to appreciate the the heights that you gain. Well, in in every area of life, there is uh, a learning cycle, a learning curve to become proficient and to go from proficiency to to skill and from skill to excellence and uh, from excellence to greatness. And so, you know, we keep interviewing people that we believe have achieved greatness in a certain area or aspect of life or maybe multiple areas of life. And uh, then we talk to them about all of the setbacks and all of the fear and the doubt and the things that they had to overcome to get to where they got to. So that's kind of the premise of that. And uh, we're eight episodes deep. Uh, We're working on setting up our next uh, set of episodes with uh, my co-host Whitney Powell as we speak. And uh, it's been a it's been a fun ride. If we've had eight really dynamic conversations with really fascinating people, and um, I'm excited for people to experience the content because every week I come out of the call inspired and excited to get that um, to our listeners. 
So, Scott, you and I are at a disadvantage. Usually we're across the table from one another, and we give little cue signs like, hey, I've got a question, or I've got a follow-up, <laughs> or you go. And we don't have that right now. In fact, Skype, for whatever reason, and it may be because I didn't get something paid on time. Who knows? <laughs> I certainly don't. Usually gives us at least three-way video. Right now, I only see Jimmy. I don't know if he sees me, but Scott, I do. I do, I do. I do, I do not see you. You currently, Scott, are just a, an icon, an avatar of some kind. And so uh, if you need to interrupt, you just you have permission on this podcast just to butt in, and Jimmy and I will just back down. So, you, <laughs> Sweet. This, this is going to be a first for tra- Trail Runner Nation. It's going to be a first. <laughs> so, so anytime you want to speak up, go ahead. But, Jimmy, let's talk a little bit about this podcast because here's what I want to know. You've been a guest more or a host more at this point? Uh, I've still been a guest host more than uh, mm. a guest. Mm a podcast host and what's hilarious about it is I thought that I had something um, handled that I was coming into being a podcast host um, with so much experience and kind of an idea of what my voice was mm-hmm. that, <laughs> that, that, I, that I thought it was going to be awesome and uh, we did a sound test uh, episode where we brought a friend of mine in and we interviewed him. And when I went back and listened to it, it was literally one of the most horrible podcasts I'd ever listened to in my entire life. And uh, Whitney and I regrouped after that. We're like, we're, we're asking multiple choice questions instead of open-ended questions. We're asking things that are, are not very interesting. Um, it's all very small talk over coffee as opposed to probing questions where people get to the heart and their passion of things. And so, what I what I realized was I all this time I've been coming on TRN as a co-host and, and my experience with a few other podcasts, I've kind of been like color commentary, whereas when you are the foundation host of a show, you're, you're more like play by play. And so I was learning a whole new skill and, and had to um, basically change up. You know how I was approaching it, and actually do some show prep, like Don. <laughs> yeah, well, about that show prep. <laughs> who, who, who is who? Who plays the audio engineer? Uh, is that Whitney or you? It's me. I've I've had to learn everything, and not so, only that, not only that, but um, I took everything that I learned from all the people who are doing podcasts and threw it completely out the window, <laughs> because I have no desire to do a soundboard. I have no desire to do anything on Mac, so I was basically reinventing the wheel. And uh, I'm doing everything PC and no soundboard. So, is that that's, Whitney in the background? Yeah, that's, Mar- that's Mardo trying to be a part of the show. Hi, baby girl. Mardo <laughs> is now a year and a half old. Um, July fourth, it was her 18 month um, anniversary. I don't know if we call it a birthday if it's a year and a half, but uh, she's over in the kitchen with Kate and she's smiling at me right now. Oh, that's great. Now, now, we talked about uh, being a co-host, being a host, and, and I'll, I, will, I will share with you, without Scott, even though he's an avatar right now, without Scott on the other end, I feel like a, a one-legged person because I depend so much on, on him coming up with the next question or just giving me a chance to relax so I think he has a question and I can start thinking of questions of my own. Otherwise, I would feel like a person just... I think the podcast would end after five minutes. I would say, it, well, that's pretty much what I have. It takes the pressure off, doesn't it? I mean, you don't sure always does. have to have the next question. 
Well, aside yeah, from great. aside from the the pressure, you know, having three people in the conversation, it it becomes more dynamic. Not only that, but when two people are in a conversation, it sort of has a more predictable path and having a co-host who thinks differently has a different set of experiences than you they open the conversation up in a totally different way and it can can have segues into a lot more interesting um content and that's Whitney is really enthusiastic she's got a great radio voice and she's an awesome co-host she really she carries the show so i, <laughs> I feel like i'm doing a lot of my legwork in the uh sound editing and and finding guests and that kind of thing. So um, really excited about it, and we're excited to get a couple more guests and, and get this thing back on track. So, so Jimmy, um, as you know, TRN is an edit-free podcast, right? And now you can appreciate that more <laughs> than ever since you're now you know, editing your podcast. How, much, how long does it take you to edit an episode? And then I'll share with you what it takes over here. Well, the, the bell curve um, in my show notes, you know, as I'm recording an episode when there's technical hiccups or background noise, I'm notating when that happens mm-hmm. so that I know where to go back to to clean stuff up. Right. I I think the most of our episodes are around 90 minutes and the first show took me like 10 days um <laughs> working on it probably 2 or 3 hours a day to edit. Mm-hmm. Um a complete rookie learning the software. Um, now I believe I have it down to like a few hours. So I, I think I probably listened to the whole episode and there's probably a more efficient way to do that. But for right mm-hmm. now, I listen to most of every episode and clean it up on the fly. So for every minute of the show, I probably take two minutes to edit it. So. Ooh. 90 minute show, three hours of editing. I try and knock it out in a day or two. See, that's so why you need a that, that's why you need a Mac there, Jimmy. Because I don't think Don Don, although Don's had Don's had, what are we in, into our TRN like 250, 270 episodes? I, I don't know. I think we said that a, a few months ago. Maybe we may be in the 280s now. I don't know, Scott. We need to check into that. But go ahead with your point. I was just going to say. I mean, how long does it take you to uh, put things together for? And we won't say edit quotes on both sides of edit how long does it take you well you know you know uh according to jim with jimmy's story we are an edit free podcast because nowhere near that time and when it started out i'm um, certainly you know the bell the the curve on learning how to to turn volume up and down and do whatever the things cut it and splice and put together stuff um does take more time so you're, you're getting into the journeyman side now so you're rolling through there but i would say in the very beginning when i was doing editing much, much longer because I was taking out little sound bites in the beginning like our opening is now, mm-hmm. and I, I plugged in relevant comments on that podcast. And I soon began to see that, boy, that's a full-time job, and I don't I already have a couple of those, so I don't need that job. And, heck, I want to run too. So I quit doing that, and now we just um, put it in as a staple, a standard introduction, which you're on, Jimmy. Um, this might be the bo- best podcast ever is your uh, voice <laughs> on the front of that. <laughs> and so I just slide that, that file right in the beginning, and so it, it plays on out. So with that, we've been pretty quick. I can just put the end, the front, the end, the middle, and uh, I, 
hope that the volumes are good. If not, I have to adjust those a little bit if, I'm, if I'm, uh, I don't have the ability to see it coming that way. And that's it. So I don't try to put too much um, editing if I, if I uh, can get away with it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm getting working my way more and more towards that. We now have a consistent bumper and uh, music that was uh, composed specifically for the show. So hmm. it's getting better, and I'm cut, cutting and pasting audio clips from previous shows now. Uh, it's happening a lot quicker, but you know, maybe I'll get it down to you know half an hour edit or you know 45 minute edit if I take better notes. It's you a know, lot of fun. Go ahead, you know, Scott. I was going to say, you know, Jimmy, I, I have to recommit myself. I did listen to the inaugural, the very first uh, podcast that you did, and I thought it was fantastic. Um, I need to get this on. I need to actually subscribe so that it starts popping up on my device every time a new one comes on because it, that's good running uh, banter um, that you guys have there. So I'd, I'd recommend everybody go to uh, iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and look for doing and in, doing inspiring shit. It's do inspiring shit. Oh, do. That's <laughs> why, but, you know, I actually, you know how I found it. I, I was just, while we were talking, I, I couldn't find it. It said doing and, and, and I, it didn't come up. So I put Jimmy Dean Freeman and it popped up. So you can go, you can uh, go to iTunes and just type in Jimmy Dean Freeman and it pops up right. We are uh, iTunes. We're on Stitcher Radio. Um, you can download it directly from the website, doinspiringshit.com. Um, and I believe we're on Google Play Music uh, and, a, and a handful of other places that are syndicated. So, so Jimmy, let's, you know, I, I'm not done with the podcast stuff because it's really fascinating to me. And, and heck, now that you're doing it, I get to talk to you about it. Um, let's talk about um, invitations, about getting people coordinated to get on the show, scheduling. Harder or easier than you thought? Do you spend more time editing or making invitations and getting the time on the calendar that works? You know, um, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here. but Throw them uh, under the bus, <laughs> Whitney. Because we, we don't have a consistent time that we do it every week. The uh -huh. guests have been particularly easy to schedule, and coordinating mine and Whitney's schedules has been the challenge. Um, so once Whitney and I have a time, you know, I can send out invitations to two or three different guests and, and I'll have somebody that's available and our guests have all been really generous and willing and, um, have given, you know, freely of their time. And it's been really exciting. I've gotten to talk to some people that I knew that I thought I knew really well. And I learned things about them on the podcast in the middle of it that were really interesting, intimate details. And um, there's a couple of guests that I didn't know as well. So it was a, a discovery conversation for me and the listeners. But uh, yeah, the, each, each week has been something completely different. Like our episode eight was um, a family who's traveling the world with three kids um, under the age of 10. Mm. And... They're from uh, Hermosa Beach, so we're you know maybe a half marathon apart distance-wise, neighborhood-wise, and we met in South Africa in the middle of a safari, yeah. and it was pretty crazy. They're six months into it, a, a full-year trip traveling country to country. Fantastic. Hey, my final question, Scott, if it's okay with you on the podcast yeah. thing is, how about 
topics and people. You know, when we started out running, how much can you talk about running? You know, after, you know, an episode or two, maybe you've exhausted your resources, but we're at whatever we are, 250-plus-ish, and I, I, there, there's not enough time for us to um, address all of the topics that are out there, books that are coming in and great runs and accomplishments and people, and we get suggestions from listeners, which is, are fantastic. And uh, what about you? How, how do you feel about, you know, building a 500-episode base? Do you think, can you do it? Well, um, you know, if we do a 500-episode base, that's a 10-year project because at this point we're doing about one a week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 50 a year seems reasonable. Um, as we get more in the flow of things, we might start recording a couple at a time and, and maybe put up, you know, a couple a week. But as of right now, just I just want to get to, you know, 25 <laughs> <laughs> you know we stalled we stalled a little bit on our way to 10 um i you know kate and i took a two-week trip to south africa and then coincidentally you know not long after we got back whitney took uh, a trip to south africa so um we need to coordinate our trips better <laughs> we could have all been over in south africa doing podcasts together well, so so speaking of doing inspiring stuff, um, the, the topic for today's podcast is Badwater 135, the toughest, uh, what is the world's toughest foot race is what it's, it's, uh, it's known for. And Jimmy is running for this for, uh, you've, you've run this before. How many times, Jimmy? Uh, this would be my second start. I uh, was a participant in 2010. And I was a crew member in 2009 and twice more between 2010 and now. So I've been a pacer. I've been a crew chief. Uh, this will be my fifth trip out to Death Valley and my second time competing. So, Jimmy, tell us a little bit about this race. I mean, it sounds like you've been out there five times in a number of different uh, with a number of different hats on. Tell us a little bit about the history of this race, how it started and why you're going back to run it. Well, Badwater, uh, one of my secondary uh, names for it is Bad Idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Death Valley is aptly named for um, one of the hottest places on the planet Earth. Hmm. And back in the 70s, you know, not too far off from the timing of the origin story for Western states, um, a gentleman by the name of Al Arnold, who is also from Northern California, uh, looked at a map and realized that the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere, Badwater Basin, which is 285 feet below sea level, was not that far away from the top of Mount Whitney, which is the highest point in the 48 states. So he looked at the roads that sort of went through Death Valley and uh, over Towns Pass into the Panamint Valley and then up, you know, into uh, Owens Valley and through Owens Valley to the base of uh, Whitney and then up Whitney to the portals and then onto the trails to the top of Mount Whitney. It's uh, approximately 146 miles from Badwater Basin to the top of Whitney via the 
uh, most traditional route. It takes the hiking route as opposed to the mountaineering route, which would be slightly shorter. Um, and Al Arnold, uh, resident of Walnut Creek, California, uh, was in his late 40s. Or I actually believe at the time he started, he was mid-40s and was just trying to do it to prove that it could be done. And uh, speaking of uh, failures leading to success, he um, attempted it in 1974, which is also the same year that Gordy uh, did his first uh, Western States trail ride run. And then he failed again in 1975 and kind of regrouped and, and reconsidered some things and came back in 1977. And uh, third time was a charm. He in 1977, started running in um, Death Valley and ran all the way to the top of Mount Whitney. Now, there's there's a bunch of different pieces to the story. Um, I, I've heard something like the car broke down and he actually ran backwards to, like, <laughs> get help the car, like, repair the car. And um, I, I believe he did it in... in 80 hours or so. Um, I'll have to look that up while uh, I'm telling this story. But uh, he was uh, 49 years old. Um, and, you know, once it was done, people heard about it internationally and, and were really wowed by, you know, first off, it's 146 miles to get to the top of the peak. But then you have to come an 11-mile trail back down before you're really done. So it's 157, you know, end to end. Hmm. And, uh, you know, he did come back years later and do it as a part of the official Badwater race. Um, the race was originally organized, I believe, by a company called High Tech and was sort of a um, pitting of the uh, a couple of U.S. ultra runners versus some... Um, United Kingdom ultra runners. And that first race, uh, I believe happened at night. And, um, I don't remember who won, but just, it's been held almost continuously as a race since the early eighties. So, so Jimmy, may I interrupt for a second? And just the, the question that jumps out at me, it's Badwater 135 and it's 157 total to complete. Uh, was I think your largest number that you stated? Uh, One fifty-seven is what gets you back to civilization. One forty-six mm. is where the original challenge ended, which is the top of Mount Whitney. So when you kind of sign the the Whitney Register, that's the end of the Badwater One Forty-six. Now, in the late '80s or early '90s, uh, NPS National Park Service started issuing permits um, for the Mount Whitney Trail and the John Muir Trail. And in order to summit Whitney, you had to get one of these permits. So when they first, you know, um, went to do the race, you know, in the early 90s, uh, they couldn't get permits. And National Park Service said, you know, there's no way in hell we're going to issue permits to people that have run 135 miles <laughs> through Death Valley in the hottest week of the summer to get to our trailhead. So at that point, the race was uh, slightly shortened to end at the Whitney portals, which is the parking lot where the 
Mount Whitney Trail begins. And the race officially, formally became the Badwater 135. So, Got it. Got but it. there's, but there's still people that that somehow get a permit and and go to the top of Whitney. Is that correct? And and yeah, Badwater has an unknown number of applicants, and currently the qualifying standards are you have to run three 100 mile races, continuous 100 mile races, um, not in the 24 hour format. And when you have those three, you apply for the race, and they invite 50 veterans and 50 rookies. And of those 100, uh, typically 90 to 95 of them start the race. And I would estimate of the 90, 95 athletes, maybe a half dozen will go for the Whitney permits and attempt to ascent, uh, make the Whitney peak tag at the end. Um, I had permits in 2010, and um, I was obliterated when I got to the Whitney Portals trailhead and ended up in the Dow Villa Hotel um, with ice packs on, like, literally every major muscle group in my body as my entire body went into an inflammation response. And uh, it took a little while until uh, then-medical director uh, Lisa Strunk Bliss uh, gave me some um, oral rehydration salts and my sort of core temperature started to come down and, and I didn't feel like I was 123 degrees internally. Hmm. Um, so that wasn't the year for me to summit Whitney. I've summited Whitney twice. I actually, the first time I ever summited was after crewing it the very first time. So I went up Whitney after crewing Badwater for two days and being dehydrated and exhausted and so i feel like i have sort of an idea of what i'm getting myself into but probably not really at all how many runners start the race and how many finish and then how many um go further and then uh, hit the top of whitney um i do not know the numbers of people that complete the 146 um that are involved with the official badwater 135 okay uh, I do know that a lot of people in sort of this original spirit of Al Arnold will do the event um, solo and not, not attached to the official um, competition. Mm-hmm. So I, I have no idea what those numbers are. Uh, as a matter of, you know, the Badwater 135, the official start, I would estimate around 90, 95 people start it each year. And it has a rather high finishing rate because it's so difficult to get into. Mm-hmm. And the field is selected from a pool of applicants such that the um, most seasoned competitors are generally being selected. And it's an expensive race to get into. You know, it's over $1,200 uh, mm-hmm. registration. And um, so in that vein, people have a lot at stake financially. The race probably costs three to four grand minimum to, you know, get the other part of your team, your crew members out there. You're required to have, um, you know, a crew van and up to four crew members. And uh, so there's a lot of expenses involved with this race. And rightfully so. You know, it's it's not um, it wouldn't be a safe environment if you didn't have a support crew um, to pull you out of the, the heat if something went sideways. So let's let's actually dive into that just a little bit, Jimmy. This is different than 
than a lot of uh, endurance races where you have race volunteers that are have aid stations set up every you know so many miles tell us a little bit about um that part of of bad water and and then i'll well go ahead and talk about that and then i have another follow-up question about that because scott you do you have the veto on all sound on this you you have a question you can just butt right all <laughs> right <up>. yeah no. <laughs> I, I, i'm i'm gonna use that button <laughs> yeah you might you might get used to that well we might hold it uh that rule here too in in cdog yeah. so scotty uh you want to know kind of how the race goes no, just about the 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 race support. So the volunteers and the race. This is very different. Where you have your crew that follows you the entire race in a van, and they're the ones that take care of your hydration or nourishment needs. There's I, I, the way I understand it is there are not aid stations along the route. Is that correct? No, no. There's only time checkpoints. Um, the interesting thing about this race is. You know, you look at a traditional uh, mountain 100-mile race and your checkpoints, your aid stations will happen to be at trailheads or campgrounds or horse staging areas or road crossings. So, you know, your crew will get ahead of you 10, 15, 20 miles and then they'll set up shop in the way for you to come. Uh, Badwater 135 is... feels a little bit more like um, like the Indy 500. Like your car is constantly driving past the pit where it can dock and get, you know, the tires changed and the fuel refilled and, and all of that. So you are running um, to your vehicle approximately every two to two and a half miles. So... Um, you will refill a water bottle. You'll, you know, get some gel packs. You'll uh, get a bandana with ice and tie it around your neck. Throw some ice in your your hat, and then you, whenever you need to stop to troubleshoot a problem, whether it be a blister or a hot spot in your shoes or um, chafing problem, or, or you're overheating, or you're not eating enough, um, you know, you're. Depending on how fast you're moving, your your vehicle's only going to be you know somewhere between twelve and thirty minutes away. So, you kind of try to maximize um, seeing the vehicle as often as you do, and um, keep moving you know, forward as quickly as you can. It it would this event wouldn't be able to happen without the support crews because it's just so intensely hot that. If you get yourself into some kind of trouble out there, um, you know people die in Death Valley. <laughs> it's called Death Valley. <laughs> if that if that isn't some sort of warning, I don't know what is. But uh, I know even employees of the National Park Service have died, um, and they know better than anybody the dangers of um, being in exposed to extreme heat. So you know cars break down cell phones are out of range at certain spots and um you know you you your crew is vital so in that i have crewed this three times i can say that in many ways crewing bad water for an athlete that's you know 
30 to, to 45 hours. The race has a 48-hour time limit. Uh, in many ways, is more difficult than running a 100-mile race yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are on every, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And in that 15, 20 minutes in between, you know, you're, you're driving and you're looking for a place to park that's, you know, safe. Um, trying not to get the, uh, the tires of the van stuck in the sand. Um, you know, you have to drive the speed limit which is a high, it's a highway through Death Valley and, and there's, you know, other competitors and other vans and it's just, there's, there's a lot of chaos and commotion, but once everybody sort of settles in, you know, somewhere about 10, 15, 20 miles into the race, there's a real, um, almost choreography to it. And it's pretty cool to see the vans leapfrogging and the athletes running together and, at a certain point, it feels like the race goes from competitors to um, compadres. You know, it, it gets kind of a rhythm. Helping it other athletes, like. yeah. and it's a it's a real family out there. Um, I'd say you know a solid you know eighty, ninety percent of the people out there really aren't competing with each other so much as trying to survive together and help each other um, make it. Hey so, Jimmy, you 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 were talking um, earlier about pacing. So if you have a crew in a van that is uh, no more than two miles away, fifteen thirty minutes away at any given time, are you are you saying that there's still pacers that you have, and when can they join, and how does that whole thing work out? So the place with which you are allowed to have a pacer has changed uh, numerous times over the years. In 2010, you had to make it from Badwater to the first time station at Furnace Creek. Um, that was 17 miles into the race before you could have pacing. Um, and back then, you were allowed two crew vehicles and six crew members. So I think I had two dedicated crew and four rotating pacers, which was a luxury. Um, now you get one crew vehicle and four um, crew members, and I have two dedicated crew members and two dedicated pacers. I believe that the earliest place that you're allowed to have a pacer is now the second time station, which is Stovepipe Wells, approximately uh, 41 miles into the race. Um, The race in 2010 started in the morning, uh, 6 a.m., 8 a.m., and 10 a.m. It's a three-wave start uh this year and last year and and all years henceforth will be evening starts uh and it's 8 p.m 9 30 p.m and 11 p.m on monday night so i'm i'm in the third and final wave the uh 11 p.m wave and uh i'm terrified by the prospect of even if i have like my best possible race i'm going to be running through two nights Hmm. and uh I have two pacers that are both capable of running, you know, 50 miles to 100K each with me. Um, And they will have the ability to do somewhere around, you know, 45 miles each if they split it up, you know, precisely. Now, I I want to employ the Scott rule, which means you get to speak over anybody at any time. And and so I'm I'm using my, my one now. And Jimmy... For me, if I was in a 135-mile race and I had my exit vehicle 
no more than two miles in front of me, that would be a mental head game that I don't know if I could, I could win because the exit is it's just a road. It's not like you're A to B through, I'm going to go get this canyon, and then I'm going to do a river crossing, and then I have to. It's none of that. It's, it's, I'm going down a road looking at a white line, and my exit is two miles up there. Maybe I'll just get in there, and it's, they have air conditioning, and, and the people that I care about are there to make me feel good. Gosh, that's got to be tough. You know, there's an interesting thing in extreme endurance events. And, and I don't know, you guys have probably had this experience. I know I've had it a number of times. Imagine a race where you were really pushing hard at the end. Uh, Don, maybe Angela's Crest. Mm -hmm. Scott, maybe Western States. And as you're getting towards the end of the race, you know, the, you can smell the hay in the barn and, and you're kind of pushing a little bit to, to either sneak in under an hour mark or, you know, get in before time cut off. And you find that you're running pretty good. You might be grinding a little bit. You might be in a lot of pain, but you're running at least in your own mind, pretty decently. And you, you get to the finishing area and you cross the finish line and you like take a moment and kind of regroup. And then suddenly you can barely walk. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you just, you just did a hundred miles and you were running great for yeah. 10 miles feeling awful. And then you get up to walk and it's like, suddenly you, you can't even like walk you're, you're like an 80-year-old man. You need a walker. You need people to help you. You need people to carry stuff. And it's like what happened in that like 10 feet from crossing the finish line to like trying to move forward more? And there's a real interesting aspect of all of this, which is that mind over matter, mind over body, where we kind of know what this finish line is. And we're able to... Um, we're able to withstand or tolerate a much higher pain threshold than when there is purpose and that pain. And, you know, back in 2014, you know, I ran the original six hundo challenge. And it was interesting because, you know, I went into a lot of those races feeling awful at the beginning. And if they were standalone events, I probably wouldn't have done more than 10, 20 miles of them before I pulled the plug. But you sort of know where the finish line is so you kind of make up your mind that you're willing to suffer a little bit more and I remember that summer one of the one the races that I dreaded was you know arguably the fastest race of the bunch at Vermont and they have a no headphones no music rule at that race because the event still happens side by side with the 100 mile horse race so it's a safety issue. You can't have headphones in and, and have horses coming up behind you and not be able to hear the riders. You become a danger to yourself and uh, the horse and the rider. So I thought this was going to be this major mental obstacle, but I went in knowing what the ground rules were. You, and I use music a lot of times in the second half of, of long races as a, as a mental boost as a way to find um, a cadence and a rhythm to, to keep running stronger. I didn't use any music at that race. I didn't have anything other than a handful of people to talk to here and there and, you know, the scenery to, to kind of keep, keep me going. And it was never, ever an issue. So 
that idea that it would be really hard to see the car every couple of miles, you know, on the other side of that, you know, I think of Angela's Crest and, you know, getting, digging into Cooper Canyon when you've got this like, you know, uh, eight mile section and you're in the middle of nowhere and there's other racers, but there's not really support. And you just feel awful and you're grinding up this hill and you don't know how long it's going to take to get to the aid station to get back to your crew and, and troubleshoot some problems. And so in that in that way, Badwater is a little bit simpler, a little bit easier in the sense that when you need something, you're not far from it. And then, yeah, you know, it there is a mental obstacle to I can just get in an air conditioned car right now and not be suffering through this disgusting heat but you go into the event knowing that that is the setup and i don't remember having a strong pull to get in the car and and i'm not saying that that nobody does and i'm not saying that i won't particularly have this problem this year because who knows i might want to get in the car the very second time i see it but hmm. you kind of go in like making up your mind like i'm running 135 or I'm going to travel 146 and I'm going to see the car, you know, uh, 60 times throughout this event. And I'm only going to get in it if I have something that's an emergency or, you know, I need to troubleshoot a heat problem or a foot problem, you know, that it's, it's going to be there to utilize, to help keep moving me forward. It's not going to be something that, that, that becomes a crutch or, like a reason to drop out. I've stated to all the most important people in my life that I will not quit. And the only thing that would cause a DNF would be a medical DNF where they need to take me to, you know, it, where, where there's something uh, dangerous happening with my health. Jimmy, I, I like that. A, a mental DNF versus a medical DNF. You know, how, how many DNFs are mental DNFs? Don't let yourself become victim to a weak mind and have a mental DNF. That's, uh, you know, we've talked a lot on the podcast, a lot of episodes, and, and I don't think the mental DNF and the, and the medical DNF have come up as a, uh, in, the, uh, in the dialogue. I, I like it. Well, and there's more than one mental DNF. Uh, you know, not executing your race plan, uh, you know, running too fast in the beginning is a mental DNF. It's not, you know being smart and getting yourself into physical trouble. Um, you know, and then there's the one where you just aren't ready to tolerate that level of pain. Um, I think back to, you know, the three times I've pulled out of hundred mile plus races. Um, the first time was medical related, um, you know, dealing with, uh, symptoms of hypoxia. The second time, uh, I was having such a bad hip flexor issue that at the mile 76 mark, I could no longer pick up my right foot off the ground. And then uh, the third one was a lower back issue where my lower back froze up and um, I had concerns of being able to pick up my daughter, <laughs> like literally lift my, at the time, 10, 12 pound daughter off the ground. Um, so each time I've had some physical shift that you know, I can say in the space of um, these events, I know what productive pain is and I know what non-productive, dangerous, you know, harmful pain is. And 
each person, you know, has to determine that for themselves because they're, you know, we all can only feel the sensations in our own body. Um, and I feel I have a pretty strong grasp on stuff that I can run through capably and stuff that is, you know, retreat and fight another day. Hey, Jimmy. I'm gonna, uh, yes. Go uh, ahead, Scott. I, I'm go Trump ahead, Scott. You. I'm Trump. Yes, no, yeah. you can. You can. Uh, um, let, let's talk about how different this race is in um, relation to preparation. I mean, it is 135 miles, which is 35 miles longer than most of the long races that, that uh, we're used to. And then the whole heat of this, how do you prepare yourself mentally and physically for a race like this compared to a typical hundred miler? Well, my Good question, Scott. Good question. My training methods have, have evolved a lot over the years. And what's interesting is I now train similarly for a 100-mile mountain race and a 56-mile road race and a 135-mile road race with a 22-mile trail hike at the end. You know, it's I find that fitness is fitness and I need to train to be as healthy and strong as I can. And there are limits to how much stress, training stress, I can apply to my body um, before I'm overtraining or knocking my immune system down. So I make subtle, um, you know, course specific training adjustments. Like I have been running a lot more road over the last you know, six to eight months than I have in the past. Um, but in terms of time on my feet and, um, you know, other things like that, I, I've been doing a very similar training program, which is just kind of listen to my body. I find that, you know, personally, I can handle about 40 to 60 miles a week consistently. And I can find a good level of fitness and improve. And I've added a lot of strength training over the last uh, two, three years. So that's been become a much bigger part of my routine two, three days a week. You know, I'm hitting the gym to do some strength work and core work and upper body and, um, squats and lunges and all that. And then, you know, for a race with extremely high heat, um, the other aspect of training, the one thing that, that, you know, distinguishes it from my normal program would be uh, sauna training to get in to a hot, dry sauna and drink as much water and fluid as I can and allow my body to make heat adaptations, which is your body will learn to empty more fluid from the stomach. It will utilize more fluid for sweat, for evaporative cooling, and your body will start to produce a hormone that will um, have you sweat out less electrolytes. And, uh, the sauna that I have access to gets up to about 170, 180 degrees Fahrenheit. And at this point I can last wow. about, yeah, I can last about 30 to 35 minutes in that. And then I'm done and uh, I do it every other day. I haven't been doing it nearly as long as I would have liked. Um, I uh, went out for a two hour run in a hundred degrees um, on the roads uh, about three, four weeks ago, and it knocked me out of training for 10 days. So, What, what, what did your mind say then, Jimmy? Because that's kind of like a, uh, a wake-up call if that happens to you. Or it could just be a bad day, which can happen too. Um, 
it was a huge wake up call. Um, I was riding on that I'm fairly fit in a mm-hmm. running and racing sense. And as far as like strength, core, uh, my back, my arms, I'm stronger than I've ever been. Um, and I've es- established um, new uh, PRs this year. And it's the first time in five years I've lowered any of my fastest times. So when I was 34, you know, I ran PR after PR in 2011. And since uh, May of 2011, I haven't lowered a single time at any distance until this year. So I ran a 50K trail PR in uh, April, I think it was. And then in May, we went to South Africa and ran Comrades, a 56-mile road race. And I established both a new 50-mile PR and a uh, double marathon PR because I had raced a double marathon before. So... Um, I knew I was fit. I'm back, you know, under the three hour marathon threshold. I ran a 259 back in March. And so I think that I was too focused on the running and the workouts and not enough on heat conditioning. And it's just something that like, I think I procrastinated on too long. Um, thinking I would have, it, it, I would get fit as a runner and then I would add in this new stress and it just, I put it off too long. And so after Comrades, I came back and it took a couple of weeks just to get back on our time zone. And I had a relatively straightforward week. It was about 55 mile week. I didn't feel great at the end of the week. Um, and I went into this run, you know, not feeling 100% and it knocked me down. It didn't completely knock me out. Um, when I attempted to do a speed workout the following Tuesday, that's when I really, you know, that was the slam dunk moment (laughs) of being just completely obliterated. But in that speed workout, you know, I, I ran really hard for 24 minutes. It was kind of like a distance test. And, uh, I ran a lifetime best 5k in that distance test. So it was just, it was a dumb move, like in the middle of it, I was looking at my heart rate and it was about 15, 20 beats higher than it should have been. And if I were a smarter man, I would have uh, pulled out of that workout. But, uh, you know, I like doing races through deserts, 135 miles long. I'm not a smarter man. <laughs> hey, Scott, I'm going to I'm going to jump in front of you so I don't feel guilty about uh, this. The Scott rule and, and my que- you know, my observation and kind of the statements we've made in the past. And, and I parallel with what you're saying. I feel if you can get fit. You can go out there and run these long distances if you observe the rules of not overworking yourself and putting yourself into a catastrophic metabolic uh, um, state. And and we've we've talked about it before of taking a, a Navy SEAL, a well-trained, you know, essentially an athlete, a, a warrior out there, and you could tell this SEAL run a hundred miles and it's going to get done. And if you say you need to get there because the mission says sub twenty-four, it's getting done. And he or she may never have run 100 miles before. Just fit bodies with a plan, well executed, can can get it done. And that's why I think it's important, as you say, I'm running 40, 60 miles a week. I don't really go too much further than that. And we hear many people going twice those distances. But you're confident, putting your body in shape, that you can get in there and execute your race plan and and have a good outcome. Well, I I think there's a couple of things that people overlook. The first piece 
you know, for people who want to get into these distances or maybe have the goal of Badwater itself, um, every human body is unique. Every, you know, internal system, both metabolic and uh, cardiovascular, you know, we're all built differently. We're all different kind of car, you know, and learning what your personal limits are and, and those limits may change. You know, what you're capable of doing now uh, may expand. You know, maybe you can only get in, you know, five hours a week or, you know, 30 miles a week at this point and stay, stay healthy doing that. You know, and, and conversely, maybe you're, you know, an 80-mile-a-week person and your life changes and you go from someone who, you know, maybe you're studying in school or you're post-collegiate and you get a different kind of job and that job has a lot more time and energy demands. Or in my particular case, you know, I went from, you know, married and without children to um, father of a, a baby girl and, you know, my time constraints changed radically. I used to have, you know, about 15 hours a week available for training. I wasn't training 15 hours a week every week, but I had that available. Now I'm lucky if I have seven to eight hours a week on average, and there's an occasional week where I can get 10 to 12 um, if I have a good long run on the weekend. But even that long run on the weekend is, you know, you're sacrificing family time. And right now, I place a higher value on time with my wife and my daughter than I do on getting crazy six to eight hour training runs in every weekend. So, um, you know, priorities are one thing. What your body can handle is another. And then the third piece, I think I said there's two. Now I'm going to say three. Um, the third piece is realizing that this training program isn't an island. You know, I might get a few hundred miles in training for Badwater this year. But I've done, you know, thousands of miles in training cumulatively in the last 10 years. And mm. each one of those, you know, built a different sort of baseline of fitness. And I'm building off of those former programs. I'm not, it's, I, I might look at this program and go, okay, the last six weeks have been crap for me. You know, I had 10 days off completely. I had a few 15 mile weeks, which we know is the threshold for, um, Freeman's running 100-mile races. You need to at least get 15 miles a weekend. And, uh, you know, it just hasn't been ideal since I got back from South Africa. And, But I know that it's not just this training program that got me ready for this. It's the training I've done over the last year, you know, when I raced Havelina in October. And it's, you know, the speed work that led to being able to run a sub-three marathon again. And you know, before that, you know, I had a long training block for the San Diego 100. And you can just keep backing it out and go, oh, I've put thousands of miles into this, maybe even 10,000 miles of training over the last five to 10 years. And it builds off of it. And not just the, the physical fitness and the endurance, but the, um, the body awareness, the knowing what symptoms and signals lead to what and knowing how to kind of adjust all the levers and dials to get things dialed in for, for a long, long day. Ooh, that's, that's so good, Jimmy. I mean, your last 10 years is what you go into the start line with, not just your last training block. And that's so important. It's so, so good for people to, to have their personal confidence looking back at their resume, this not at their last training block. I, I, I really, really, really like that perspective. 
and uh, need to use it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I try to remind my athletes of that all the time that, you know, you might think that you didn't have a great training program, but it's not just this training program that's led to the current state of fitness. Hmm. Hey, let's, let, more. you know, I, I, I've seen photos of, of people um, running bad water and they're in the, you know, ankle to top of their head, white suits, completely covering every inch of skin. Um, what, what is your attire look like going into uh, bad water? I try to hey, cover. Hey, Jimmy, Jimmy, yo. Jimmy, let me just jump in, in front of you and let's remember the question running attire. You see how good Scott is? And I talk about being a good co host. He just brings us back right to Badwater when I was <laughs> out there and, and who no. knows where. Well, and he just, he says, the trail's over here, Freeman, over here. We're red <laughs> ribbons today. No, no. <laughs> He's so good. These, these, these divergence need to happen because there's so oh. much of the philosophical parts of running but uh and i think it applies to bad water so i am not i'm not afraid of uh jumping off the trail for uh, a couple questions and you guys good, know me good. so like, my podcast is a philosophy podcast and uh i'm happy to talk shop on things that are more of the spirit of what ultra running is even though we're talking about bad water as a race yeah so you're dressed up head to toe tell us about the beekeeper outfit what's going on all right. Well, um, yeah, I think the, the race attire has evolved over the years. Um, heck, I've seen photos of Al Arnold, you know, running through Badwater in nothing but tidy whitey underwear, um, cotton <laughs> socks and tennis shoes. And then he's on Mount Whitney with a pair of white shorts. And that's pretty much all that he's got on. Um, there are people that will wear full on um, sun protection suits which is pants and jackets and uh, wraparound hats. Um, and, wait, I want to jump in. And where, do you, where does one go to get these outfits? Um, there, are, <laughs> there are a number of places that, that sell them. I think that uh, uh, there's a company, I think, called Sun Precautions, and they, they make the full suits. Um, I'm sure you can find certain um, REIs will have stuff like that available. Um, I've never looked for the full suit, so I can't comment on that. You know, I, I'll wear, I have some white running shorts and uh, I'll probably wear some white compression sleeves. And then I'll have, um, I found some white shoes, which I'm pretty stoked about because they have touches of like this fire orange um, mm -hmm. around them. And then, you know, I have, I have a couple different singlets that are kind of tank toppy. Uh, I may or may not wear arm sleeves at various points of the race. And then I have the hat with the wraparound um, cloth that covers up um, your neck and your face a little bit more substantially. And you had some gloves on in a recent Facebook post with your bib number as you're returning as bib number 33. I and, noticed some gloves in there. Yeah, in 2010, I had the uh, the SPF 50 uh, gloves. I will will not be wearing those this year. Um, I'm actually kind of bummed because I want them for fashion, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <they look> good. <laughs> I won't be wearing them this year uh, simply because I couldn't find them. But uh, I, uh, I'm excited to um, pop a little color into it. I think I got a yellow jersey and a um, like greenish gray jersey, and uh, then everything else is pretty much white, white on white.
You know, let's let's we talk always... about those those arm sleeves. Um, you know, we Western states uh, just we just wrapped up with that a few weeks ago, and there were some front runners that were not wearing shirts but we're wearing arm sleeves. How important are arm sleeves in the heat and how do well, you use them effectively? It's it's up to each person to what their strategies are. Um, I know that a common trait among the Western States elite was having the arm sleeves in there and then packing the sleeves with ice. Um, and, you know, the ice water on the arms, you know, is another place where the blood comes close to the skin um, tying a bandana around your neck with ice um, against the back of your neck. That's a way to cool your blood and get the core temperature down a little bit, um, a couple of degrees. So there's a lot of different strategies for that. I've even seen a trend over the last few years at really hot races where people are going away from um, technical fabrics and dry fit material to cotton because the cotton mm. will stay wet longer. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2010, I wore fleece arm sleeves because when I poured ice water on the fleece arm sleeves, it would soak up more water and, and stay cooler longer. Um, if I can find my, you know, 2010 uh, Mobin fleece flame arm sleeves, I'll definitely break them out again. <laughs> so we, yeah. we've seen some... Uh, go ahead, Scott. I was just going to say, I, you know, the one thing that I... I, I talked to a few of the runners that were wearing the arm sleeves at this year's Western States. And, and um, you know, I knew this in, in, in extreme cold, if you keep your wrists warm, which is not typically a place that you'd think you want to keep warm. But anyway, for, for hot situations, to put ice around your wrists, because there's a lot of uh, vascular structure right there by your wrists. Well, if, if you think keep, about it, what are the places that you try and find a pulse? Exactly. You, you, you touch the underside of your neck, the blood comes close to the skin there, and then you touch your wrist for a pulse. So it makes sense that the blood comes closer to the skin there, and by cooling the blood... Yeah, ice, I think that's a very good common sense that I haven't thought of personally. The other two areas where the blood comes really close to the skin, and they're not practical for running purposes... But if you were in some kind of heat trouble, um, you're, uh, you're under your arms, your armpits, and your groin area. So if you ever encounter someone in extreme heat duress, getting ice Rip packs... their pants off. <laughs> getting ice oh, packs I'm under sorry. their arms, on the back of their neck, on their water, you know, cold water on their head, and uh, getting an ice pack you know, in the groin area, those are all areas that can lower the core temperature uh, more quickly. But it doesn't, Jimmy you know, I, I've tried running with ice packs between my legs and under my arms, and it's just really <laughs> annoying. And we've seen some epic pictures of Scott Jurek uh, on the course bathing himself mid-run in a ice, uh, you know, in a, in a, what is it? A What's coffin cooler. A nice chest. A yeah. coffin cooler, yes. A, a coffin yes. cooler, yeah. Is, is, is that standard uh, out there? Is it something you're going to employ, or is it really just uh, something that Scott did that, that year? It's not super common, but it's not uncommon either. I think that uh, among the front runners in the race, uh, they're taking a little bit more um, risk in terms of running faster, having their, their muscles generate more heat. 
So when you overheat, you know, submerging your whole body in, in an ice chest is, uh, you know, going to get that core temperature down quicker. But it also comes with other risks. You know, when you're kind of getting into that awkward position into a cooler, um, you can have your, you know, hamstring seize up, your calves seize up. Um, mm. I think it's a, it's a wiser strategy for people who aren't competing for the win. You know, they may be going for their fastest time, but, uh, you know, they're not competitive against other athletes. It's a smarter strategy just to slow down a little bit and really focus on, you know, the ice that you're wearing while you're um, moving forward and moving forward at a pace that you won't generate too much heat. So you've run it before. What are you bringing to this race that you've learned from the first race? Well, um, I, I don't run by time splits very often anymore. Um, I stay more focused on sort of um, 20 minute blocks where, you know, I, I know how many calories I got to get in and I know how much fluid I got to consume. And I stay more focused on the, the process than I do worrying too much about the outcome. And the game plan there is, you know, to kind of keep it under wraps for 100, 110 miles and then you know, maybe race the last marathon if I'm feeling particularly strong. Um, but it's, I know from last time how hard the heat was and how windy certain sections of the course were. And it just, you know, it was a lot harder than I anticipated. So I think I have a greater capacity to understand you know, mentally how difficult it's going to be physically. I think my low points will probably come at different times, especially considering that, you know, I'm starting um, 13 hours later than I did last time. I was at 10 a.m. start last time, and this time I'm an 11 p.m. start. So I'm really concerned about the two nights. Um, I've had sleep deprivation issues in many, many a hundred miler. Um, so I'm just kind of looking out for those problems and then it's kind of like you deal with things as they come up real time i've got um, to think that's going to be a, a challenge jimmy of of staying up all day or trying to sleep during the day to get yourself prepped for the evening that just seems yeah uh, my my strategy a, is to a, get a as much sleep twist. much sleep as i can for the whole week leading into the race and then um my crew and I will be retreating to the hotel room to sleep most of Monday or at least stay off our feet in, you know, in bed. Hey, Scott? Hmm. He may have dropped off. Well, I, I realized that he had the veto, Jimmy Dean, but I could always hang up on him, and apparently that's what's happened. <laughs> I think we lost him. So let's add him. I wanted to ask you the question about... Um, I'm going to put pause because I forgot my question. Don't you hate that, Jimmy? Do you have to write down questions when you... No. I'm not going to edit this out. You don't have to write down <laughs> any questions? Uh, it's not that I, I... I will have an idea of some things that I want to ask, but I like um, the Do Inspiring Shit conversation to be a little more organic. So I've, mm -hmm. I, I've never written questions down. No, I mean when you're like having a discussion. I had the greatest question better than Scott ever has ever asked in his entire life. And it slipped out of my mind. And so I'll never be able to prove it. But 
we always show up with paper and pen to hopefully write those things down, but I forgot to do that. Do you find that during a course of a conversation, you jot down notes so that you can get back to that question? No. I, I, I want the oh. conversation to flow. <laughs> and if, if at the end of like some dialogue, I'm trying to go back and remember what a question was, then it doesn't flow with that conversation. So I just let it go. Mm. Jimmy, one, one of the iconic things about um, bad water is we always hear that your shoes will melt if you don't change them in a certain number of miles. If you don't run on the <laughs> white line, it, it, it's all over. They just become part of the rubber becomes part of your foot. Tell us the real story about shoes. Well, I, I figured that the, as with many races, um, there are legends and tall tales and <laughs> truths that are stretched a little bit. And yeah. um, I heard you know, the rumors of, of shoes delaminating and, and, you know, the sole melting off the foam and stuff like that. And I crewed it and I didn't see anything like that and sort of wrote it off. And in 2010, I had three different pairs of shoes and I was rotating the three pair. Um, I, I basically wait until I, my feet felt really hot and that seemed to be every 20, 25 miles. And then I would, mm -hmm. I would, cycle in a fresh pair and um i remember that i had one pair of shoes that i had run maybe 50 100 miles in to kind of break them in and, and the other two were brand spanking new and when i went back to get one of the brand spanking new pairs um months later i think i had done a total of like 50 miles in those shoes um the strike point uh near the ball of the foot had worn all the way through the um, black, uh, you know, rubber to the white foam. And um, I was pretty taken aback by it. I was pretty fascinated that that, that actually happened out there. Uh, 2010 was a pretty hot year. I believe it was 127 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. And there were some pavement temperature readings that uh, I saw photos of that were 168 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. So that was a particularly hot year. That's that's a hot, hot pavement. Um, uh, I didn't particularly run on the white line all the time. Uh, I tried to kind of stay to the left of it to give myself a little more clearance from the cars speeding through Death Valley. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, maybe I'll be a little bit more conscious of it this time. But um, I don't want to run a tightrope. I want to run a more logical line. Um, not because if you're running the white line, you're kind of putting one foot in front of the other, and that's not a natural running gait for me. My feet sort of fall side by side. So the story's true. Shoes melt, so the story lives on. That's what that's what I just heard. <laughs> it, it did surprise me a little bit that uh, there was more wear and tear on the shoes than the miles I put in, for sure. Now, now, Jimmy, I have wanted to do bad water since I've heard of bad water because it just it's just that toughest foot race it's a uh, 135 miles you run through the heat you climb a hill at the end i mean what's not to like about that and every time that i think that that's what i want to do i get in the middle of a very very hot run and i tell myself on every hot run that i end up bonking on never ever ever let yourself run bad water and and so i've stayed away from that race just because i've told myself and i said hey this was 20 or 30 miles of this heat. Try that for 135. Jimmy, 
you know, props to you for uh, for doing it and then redoing it. Well, I I told myself I would go back within five years, and this is six years later. So, um, it you know, it's one of those things where it's hard, but there's something really magical about the event and the community of people that both participate and crew and uh you know the race staff and volunteers um are people that i've come to admire and respect greatly and um i'm excited to get an opportunity to lace them up at this uh at this event again right on scott war i'm just super excited for you jimmy how can we follow this race if we're miles away from bad water and we don't uh, particularly do well in the heat and we want to watch it from the couch, how would we follow this race? There's a uh, very good webcast at uh, badwater.com. They not only have uh, real-time updated checkpoint splits, but I believe this year we'll be wearing um, GPS tracking units, so you'll be able to see where you're at um, pretty real-time. that's, race, that's going to be a lot of fun. The rate, the first wave starts at 8 p.m. on Monday night, uh, this upcoming Monday, the 18th, I think, of July. And then uh, the next wave is an hour and a half later, 9.30 p.m. Pacific, and then 11 p.m. Pacific. So by the time people hit uh, the desk on Tuesday morning, the race will be in full effect. Uh, you'll probably have the front runners will probably be, you know, 60, 70 miles into it, halfway through the race, and uh, everyone else will probably be somewhere between uh, 35 and 50 miles into the race. So Tuesday's the day to watch. Hey, I have one one other question that I, I, I thought of. You had mentioned early in the podcast, that, um, and I, I was just, it's been nagging at me the whole podcast. You were saying there's there's approximately 100 people that are officially running this race. But you also mentioned that there's other people that pirate the race and are out there running the race in an unofficial way. Is that true? Well, here's the thing. The, the race started as one guy seeing if he could go from Badwater Basin to the top of Whitney. That's how this race became a race. And I think that people um, look at that Badwater solo sort of effort as the um, spirit of how it got created. It's definitely grown into something more as the race has evolved. Um, you know, Adventure Core uh, and Chris Kostman took the race over in uh, the mid-2000s. Oh, God, forgive me if I get, got this wrong. Uh, he might have taken it over as early as 2000. Um, the race has become a much more competitive, competitive event um, you know, as every five year period clips away, it, it's evolved into something completely different. And, um, so the Badwater 135 now is a collection of the, um, most experienced, fastest, um, ultra distance runners competing in an extreme environment. And, um, the race used to have a 60 hour time limit. It's been reduced to 48 hours. Uh, there's talk that that time limit might get tightened up again at some point in the near future. So, um, you know, you look at each year, um, the results sort of trend a little faster and a little faster. 
Um, I was 34 hours and change in 2010, which was, I believe, around 16th overall. Uh, looking at last year's results, um, 34 hours and change would have put me 21st. So, um, you know, the race has gotten deeper, it's gotten more competitive, and um, people have more knowledge about how to prepare for it and uh, how to execute a good race plan. And there's lots and lots of experienced crew members that go back and have learned from past failures on how to help their athlete uh, have a good day. You know, we started this a little clumsy. We just kind of started off and just chatting like we do. And heck, we hit record, and next thing you know, we're in the middle of a podcast. And in the beginning, we would have certainly wanted to recognize all that Jimmy's done. We would have given you the all, all the uh, the trumpets that you deserve and, and, and really talk a little bit about your resume. And you have run many, many hundreds. How many hundreds have you run, Jimmy? This will be my t- uh, attempt at my 22nd. I've finished and, eight, 18. And in one year, you put together six races and, and did this, uh, the, the, uh, the hundo, the, the, what would you call it? The uh, original six hundo challenge, the first 600-mile races that existed in the same summer over a 13-week span right and we chronicled that through uh, uh various uh podcasts and kind of followed it as you went along and and learned some things with you and then hopefully we've all taken them with us to make us better runners too because you certainly became a smarter runner during that event but uh we really do appreciate you uh, you know bringing on this story we want to certainly follow it up see what the see what the outcome and um we uh love to follow you on social media so we can keep up live with what's going on you can find me at most places at Coach Jimmy Dean. Scotty, what do you got? Oh, well, I would say um, run. Moss. <laughs> 135 <laughs> of them, to be exact. That was, that was stupid. <laughs> well, let's try it again. Since we don't edit, they're going to hear it in living color. Go ahead, Scott. So, so, Scotty, what do you got? So, I would say in the heat in Death Valley go out and run 135 miles. Moss. Uh, we'll we're going to keep the first one because that, that was yeah. probably worse. That, that was worse. Hey, J- Jimmy, um, yep. uh, best of success on do inspiring yeah. shit over there. That is, that is fantastic. I have listened to more podcasts than Scott has on it. He's an honest man, and, and I, I know he'll catch up. But you guys have just great conversation. They are organic, and I do enjoy them. And, and I'm envious of your topics because you can go anywhere. You know, we, I don't feel that we're too – well, we haven't run out of topics to talk about, but you, your field is wide open. So that's uh, yeah. going to be a lot of fun for both you and Whitney. We're having a blast with it. We're excited uh, to get the next couple of guests on. Cool. All right. So, say, hi to Kate, say, say hi to Kate and uh, Bardo for us. Bardo's in bed, but I'll, I'll say hi to Kate for sure. Thanks a lot, guys. Hey, we'll talk to you soon, Jimmy Dean. All right. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right. Bye. Bye. bye.